Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Antonio DeMori. Dr. DeMori is a research assistant professor in the Department of Surgery and Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. DeMori, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. So Dr. DeMori, I know that you have some keen interest in tissue engineering. Can you give us some highlights about the work you're pursuing? Yes, so my main research interest is cardiac tissue engineering, and generally speaking, there are three major applications. One is heart valves, the second one are cardiac restraint devices, and the third one is tissue engineering vascular graft. So let's talk a little bit about the first two. First of all, we're talking about major pathologies, about 1.6-1.8% of the U.S. population is affected by valvular disease. I sometimes make the joke when I'm presenting and uh, there are roughly 100 people in the room. I say at least one of you guys will uh, experience uh, valvular disease during his life. Luckily, not all of those people will require a full valve replacement. And yet, something like 83,000-85,000 people in the U.S. only received full valve replacement last year. Now, when that happened, there are two options. Is one is going for a metallic valve. A metallic valve are pretty good in terms of longevity. They can last something like 20 years. But patient receiving a metallic valve will undergo anticoagulation therapy for all of his life. These drugs are good, but they come with a number of limitations. So they need to be let's say, calibrated. My mom is under Comadin. My mother is 84 years old, and she's taking Comadin. And, you know, she has to go for a blood test every two weeks, and she's exposed to a number of potential complications, like GI bleeding, stroke. So, yes, metallic valves are out there. There are a big number of patients still receiving it, but they come with limitations. On the other end, a bioprosthetic valve, a valve that are obtained from animals and essentially made of tissue that is derived from an animal. The tissue then is also fixed and is combined with a stent circumferentially. But mostly we're talking about biological tissue. These valves clearly have way better hemodynamic. They don't require anticoagulation therapy, but they don't had that great longevity that you can expect with a metallic valve. So a good uh, fraction of patients, something like the 20% of patients, will need the second valve replacement between year 6 and year 10 from uh, the first one. And both metallic and bioprosthetic valve uh, also have a fixed geometry. So if we're thinking about the pediatric population, so an, an individual that will grow, those valves are still not an optimal solution because clearly the patient will need uh, multiple valve replacement. Another problem that is still common is infection. So endocarditis still affects something like 1.6%, 1.8% of patients receiving metallic or a bioprosthetic valve. In principle, this tissue engineering approach can solve this issue. In brief, for those who haven't listened to other podcasts, 
the concept of tissue engineering uh, hard valve is pretty simple so we are utilizing a temporary supporting unit which we call scaffold this scaffold is either seeded with cells or uh, will recruit the cells from the host the material of the scaffold will vanish over time and will be replaced by viable tissue so what happened is that when uh, the valve is implanted not only gets populated by cells but also develops its own lumen so the external surface of the valve will be covered by endothelial cells and endothelial cells are cells that are meant to reduce the thrombogenicity so number one you won't need anticoagulation therapy number two there is evidence that these valves don't tend to calcify so they are resistant to calcification number three the philosophy here is different from the typical philosophy, which I would say is imported from orthopedic application, where a metallic material is implanted in the body and it has to be bioinert or biocompatible. So the idea is not to have a device that is tolerated by the body, but is it having a device which will leverage on the body capacity to regenerate. So at the end, we end up with a living organ that is growing with the patient. So these are the reasons why the tissue engineering approach still represents a promise. Clearly, this application is a huge uh, complexity, and no one has ever uh, achieved full success on human. But the potential is huge, both from a scientific aspect and from also an economical aspect, because having an engineered valve uh, means essentially quickly cannibalize every other competitors. So evolve with that capacity will really conquer the market. So that's probably one of the reasons why many research groups uh, all over the world are still focusing on on this application. Now this is I would say a description of the segment, but more specifically what I do is developing a new processing method that enable to control structure and function. So the idea is yes having a, an engineered valve but having a, a valve that is fully inspired by structure and function of native tissue. So we start from duplicating the single collagen diameter. From there, we scale up to a whole organ. So the, the technology we develop is based on electrospinning, but it's based on a new type for electrospinning, where we can uh, direct the deposition of the fibers on uh, complex geometry that are derived directly from the anatomy of the patient. So ultimately we can produce an organ scale valve, so a fully assembled valve, but this valve is also made microscopically by microscopic filament. And this is something that is still not possible with 3D printing just because of the resolution. So we have a resolution which is uh, sub-micron, so with the capacity really of making an object of few centimeters, which is made of a filament fraction of a micron in diameter. Also, we have the capacity of orient those filament, and the way this capacity of orienting the filament and controlling the microstructure, we also have the capacity of duplicating or controlling the macroscopic mechanics. So ultimately we can tweak the in-plane mechanics, so what is named as a biaxial response of the valve, and we can do that so that we're duplicating exactly what happened in the mitral valve, in the aortic valve, in the tricuspid valve, 
We can also have the capacity of tweaking the out-of-plane mechanic, which is the bending rigidity of the leaflet. Very interesting. So, Dr. Nomori, can you share with us the status and the purpose of the cardiac patch that you and your colleagues are working on? So yes, so cardiac patch fall within the category of cardiac restraint devices. Cardiac restraint devices have been utilized to treat uh, ischemic heart. The main idea is to provide mechanical support. Now when we look at the pathological remodeling that fall of an heart attack, uh, the topic actually is pretty broad, but if we focus strictly on uh, macroscopic manifestation in pathological remodeling, what we can measure and will be observed is a positive loop that leads to increase of um, the wall stress. So in a pathological left ventricle wall, what we'll see is a reduction of the wall thickness. Reduction of the wall thickness, think about a membrane. You know, if the membrane is exposed to the same force and the thickness of the membrane is going down, that will induce an increase in stress. Second aspect is the synthesis of collagen, which in other words is scar formation. One of the parameters that can be studied following an heart attack is the increase of collagen and increase of the collagen cross-link. Together, those two increase the elastic modulus of the wall. An increase of elastic modulus for the same level of deformation means higher stress. So this is the second phenomenon that is leading to higher stress. And the third one is that overall, the overall shape of the ventricle is changing. So the ventricle is expanding towards the apex. And since it's expanding, the wall thickness is also reducing. And again, wall thickness reducing means higher stress. So this is the pathology. Now, how do we intervene mechanically on the pathology? Originally, the first cardiac restraint devices were meant as uh, big bags that were wrapped around the ventricle with the idea of preventing this expansion and providing an increasing, essentially preventing the reduction in uh, wall thickness. So if you place, think about placing a bag around the ventricle, the three things that you would do are increase the wall, preventing the dilation, and also changing the overall elastic modulus of the wall because the material you are implanting is softer than scar tissue. So this was the idea that led to the development of cardiac restraint devices. Unfortunately, the first generation of those devices didn't really work. So these devices were big, and again, they were wrapping around the entire heart, and they ended up being encapsulated. So they generated a very strong uh, fibrotic response. So many groups, including us, replaced the word uh, global and um, permanent, so permanent material, and global meaning a big bag wrapped around the heart with the word temporary and local. So instead of placing a, a huge bag around the heart, we placed epicardially a patch just uh, on top of the ischemic area. Number two, the material is not permanent now. It's a biodegradable material, so it will vanish over time. That reduced dramatically the fibrotic response, the amount of scar that was formed just because of implanting the device. So this is the, the starting point, I would say, or the last generation of cardiac restraint devices. What we are also doing it is trying to push this further 
and we're doing this combining two notions. One is physiological mechanics. So the material we implant uh, also is designed at microscopic level so they can duplicate the left ventricle native response. So we are implanting something that has the same mechanics so we are not expecting any type of mechanical mismatch, so a difference in the mechanical behavior of the device when compared to the native tissue. But also, this material is a composite material, and this is a work done in collaboration with Dr. Badilak. So the second phase of the material is made of cardiac ECM gel. That gel has a, a bioactive component which will promote a number of things, for example, cellular infiltration, uh, macrophages, polarization, so M1, M2 switch, or it mitigates the scar formation, it promotes vessel growth, so it has a number of benefits. So not only we are again shifting from uh, these first generation cardiac restraint devices, but we are also trying to move this application a little bit further. Of course the dream is to induce muscle regeneration, but the, in fact, the benchmark result, an acceptable result, will be to extend the life of the patient. So if you have that capacity, if you can extend the life of a patient six or nine months, essentially what you have, it's a bridge therapy. And I would like to add an additional concept, which is ideally if we can combine this with minimal invasive surgery, we might have something that will become competitive and it will become a good alternative to a VAD. So think about a cardiac patch placed epicardially with some minimal invasive strategy which really extends the life of a patient on 9 or 10 months and doesn't have all of the, the downside and the limitation of a ventricular either device. Very interesting, very nice summary. What's the status of these technologies? So those technologies are all currently under assessment on uh, large models. For the valve, we are implanting a number of different devices for different indications, including aortic, mitral, uh, tricuspid, and I would say pretty much the same situation for the cardiac patch. Dr. Demori, thank you for joining us today and sharing with us your pioneering studies that you and your colleagues are pursuing. They show much promise in terms of improving the life of many patients who have cardiac issues. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. And until we meet again, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. Thank you for listening.